my guest is Michael van Hulten. Michael van Hulten is Director of Transparency International EU. Welcome to the podcast, Michael. Thank you. We're going to talk, maybe inevitably, Michiel, about Qatargate. Uh, it was very much in the news toward the end of last year, obviously, maybe less so more recently. And therefore, maybe you could start by reminding the listeners a bit the main elements of this so-called Qatargate story. So in uh, in December last year, uh, uh, on a Friday afternoon, I remember uh, very clearly, because we're all winding down for the weekend, uh, news broke that a vice president of the European Parliament had been arrested in connection with alleged bribery by the uh, Qatari government. And this turned out to be uh, a huge scandal involving not just uh, allegedly the vice president, but also other MEPs, a former MEP, staffers uh, of, the, uh, of, the, uh, of the MEPs, and uh, millions of euros are, are said to have uh, exchanged hands. And, uh, and, and, and the allegation is that Qatar and potentially other foreign governments bribed uh, these people in the Brussels uh, institution to, to seek better, better opinions of the country, to get favorable treatment in, uh, in the work of the institution, to improve Qatar's image in, in the run-up to the World Cup, get visa-free travel, etc. So to get favorable treatment from these uh, these individuals. And judging by the way the institution has uh, addressed these issues over the last year or so, uh, it would seem that they were at least in part uh, uh, successful in doing so. Right. So in the, in the three months since this story first broke, uh, can you give us a sense, if you have one, of where we stand now and, and how do you think the next uh, period will pan out in terms of th- new developments? Yes, well, I think I think there are two things going on. One is the uh, judicial process, which is in uh, in in full course. Uh, there are new developments almost on a daily basis about new names coming out in the investigation, somebody being charged, somebody being conditionally released. There's a large number of individuals involved, and it's clear that there's a there's a huge. Uh, judicial process going on that could lead to a number of uh, high-profile individuals uh, being convicted. Uh, they're they're fighting back. Uh, most of them, uh, some of them are cooperating, and we have to see how this pans out and whether the evidence that the authorities have accumul- accumulated uh, is is sufficient to convict. At the same time, the Parliament itself ha- has uh, picked up the issue and has started looking uh, at the way it functions to see if there's anything it can do to make sure that this kind of scandal doesn't happen again in the future. And so there's also a lot of activity inside the parliament to see uh, what should be done next. You, you talk about the Belgian authorities. I mean, the Belgian prime minister not so long ago did rather in a rather pointed way say that uh, we, the Belgian authorities, seem to be doing a better job at, at regulating uh, alleged uh, corrupt behaviour in the European parliament much better than the European parliament itself is doing. Do you think that's a fair comment that Alexander de Croo made? Well, I think that is, to some extent, a fair comment. It, it should never really have got to this stage. And uh, the Parliament, in its initial initial response, was very quick to um, uh, to blame the Qatari and Moroccan authorities, who were named in the media as being responsible for uh, for the bribery that allegedly took place. The President of Parliament spoke about the Parliament being under attack, European democracy being under attack. Uh, but at the same time... Um, I think it's also clear that the Parliament has been extremely lax, both in terms of the rules that it has developed and implemented uh, inside the Parliament, but also in the way it has uh, enforced them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, an organisation such as such as ours uh, has been complaining about 
the lack of enforcement uh, for, for many years. There's effectively a situation where if MEPs don't stick to the rules, uh, they are not punished. And uh, if you have a situation like that, then it's very easy for people to think they can get away with, with anything. So there's been this culture of impunity, as we've described it, where uh, things have got out of control. Uh, there has been no enforcement. There have been no sanctions. And some individuals seem to have felt emboldened by this to, to engage in, in, in bribery and, and corruption on, on a scale never seen before. Well, obviously the clue is in the in the name, but your organisation Transparency International is all is all about this. Were you, but even so, were you were you surprised either you personally or your organisation when you heard about the, the, the this story? I mean, is it is it just part of a one ongoing saga about uh, transparency, lack of transparency, and and p- potential corruption in the European Parliament, or is this a rather more a more egregious example altogether? Certainly, this this particular uh, incident, uh, or, or uh, if you can call it that, given the enormity of it, but it, it seems to be an isolated case in the sense that you know we 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 do not believe that there are uh, lots of countries or lots of uh, malign actors walking around Brussels with suitcases full of cash trying to bribe MEPs. Uh, at the same time, uh, so in that sense, it was a big surprise and a big shock to us uh, as well. Uh, it's really hard to imagine. Uh, that anyone would engage in such blatant uh, bribery uh, that any MEP or or former MEP or staff member or former staff member would be open to uh, this kind of bribery. Uh, That's just really unheard of. But at the same time, uh, we've said for a long time that there are big systemic problems in the way uh, integrity and ethics issues are are regulated, not just in the European Parliament, but in the uh, EU institutions overall. Uh, I think the problem is probably biggest in the Parliament because the Parliament has taken fewer steps to uh, to remedy them, remedy them uh, when compared to compared to say the uh, the European Commission. Uh, but the fact is that, for instance, access to the Parliament for lobbyists has uh, has always been very easy, in particular for lobbyists from uh, third country governments, because they are not subject to the same registration rules right. as uh, as lobbyists from, say, a European company uh, trying to influence the European Parliament. So there's been a lot of activity below the radar. Uh, there is still no requirement for MEPs to record who they meet with, uh, and that makes it very difficult to scrutinise uh, and keep track of what exactly goes on inside inside the Parliament. You've been obviously uh, following these, the issues of transparency uh, in the Parliament for quite some time. I noticed more recently, uh, since Qatargate uh, scandal broke, that you've been writing about and getting some media attraction about um, these last-minute, quote-unquote, declaration by MEPs, uh, certain MEPs of uh, foreign trips paid for, for by outside interests. I mean, is that also part of the problem as well? Less, maybe obviously less severe as Qatargate, but it's that seems to be more, as you said earlier, more systemic? It is a problem, and it, it really exemplifies uh, how the Parliament has been dealing with this issue. So in this particular case, MEPs are required to uh, submit a declaration published on the Parliament's website when they accept uh, travel or accommodation or other expenses covered by a third party for attending an event or making a trip. Uh, and they are required to declare such trips uh, within uh, a month of uh, the activity having taken place. And what happened as soon as the Qatar Gate scandal broke, there was a flurry of uh, of uh, pub- publications of these declarations by MEPs who had not submitted them uh, in time and who clearly realised that they were going to be subjected to additional scrutiny and that they now needed to uh, to put their affairs in in order. 
Uh, and that, of course, in itself is, is laudable. And, and we hope that, that MEPs will continue to do this and that many more uh, MEPs decide to register their, their, their trips and uh, any other external activities paid for by, uh, by third parties. But the real problem here is that they haven't been declaring these trips. And, you know, we're talking about a large number of trips to countries like Israel, to uh, India, to United Arab Emirates, to a whole range of countries where uh, there are serious issues with uh, democracy and human rights. There are trips to Syria that have been declared, countries in uh, Central and Eastern Asia where there are problems with human rights. Uh, and yet all these declarations are being submitted late after the deadline. And that suggests that uh, that MEPs were not keen to have uh, the spotlight on uh, on these activities or actively trying to hide what they what they were doing. And yet at the same time, they were taking part in Parliament in uh, in activities that related to those countries, concerned those countries, votes on resolutions where uh, where issues relating to those countries were uh, were being discussed by the Parliament. And so that clearly creates um, uh, a conflict of interest, uh, at least a potential conflict of interest that uh, colleagues in the parliament, but also the wider public, need to be aware of when they uh, scrutinise the, the parliament's work. And, and more broadly, it, you hinted, we said very clearly, actually, more than hinted, that the European parliament, historically at least, has been quite relaxed, complacent, almost arrogant, maybe, these are my words, not yours, about, about self-regulation, really. Uh, do you think now the, 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 this has been a, there's going to be a, a mood change now and that the parliament can no longer get away with a rather more a laissez-faire attitude to, its, to the conduct of its own parliamentarians? Yes, I mean, I think the European Parliament is not unique in this. I think if you look at the history of parliamentary scandals and subsequent subsequent reforms, uh, uh, not just in Brussels, but elsewhere, what tends to happen is that there's a big scandal uh, that leads to uh, uh, some uh, some reforms, uh, some further reaching than, than others. They kind of apply sticking plaster to the biggest problem that has been identified. But then uh, as time goes on, uh, interest in the issue fades, and and the parliaments tend to uh, tend to relax the, uh, the 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 application of those rules. We see that in Brussels, but but across the EU and 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 outside the EU uh, as well. And the danger is that the same thing, in a way, will happen here. We had the big outcry in December. There were big commitments made by parliaments. It adopted a resolution calling for a number of reforms. It's uh, it, it, the president has presented behind closed doors a 14-point reform plan. That's all very good. But the reality is that un un until all these good intentions are implemented and, uh, and the new measures that the parliament adopts are enforced, it's not really worth the paper it's, it's written on. And, uh, and that's our big fear now. And if we take stock of what has happened in the parliament since December, there's been a lot of procedural activity. There's been a lot of meetings behind closed doors. But there have been very few concrete steps taken to make sure that uh, a recurrence of what has happened is uh, is impossible. So we're a little bit concerned that that here too the Parliament is uh, is not no longer showing the resolve it was showing in December, and 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 it really needs to get its act together to um, to implement the, the necessary changes. Well, the next, as you know, the next European Parliament elections are in just fourteen months' time. Do you think that the Parliament, despite what you just said, is 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 worried and anxious about the the, the image uh, that that all this is projects to the outside world. As we all know, turnout in European Parliament elections, for whatever reason, are is pretty low in most, if not all, member states. Do you think this will have an even more deleterious impact on the on the reputation of the Parliament and 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 even turnout at the elections next year? I think the Parliament is well, first of all, divided on this. I think there are MEPs who want to reform quickly. 
uh, and want to uh, impose far-reaching reforms on, on, on one end of the spectrum. At the other end, there are those who are not in a hurry and who would not like to see major change. And so there's clearly internal debate going on within the parliament as to what needs to be done. And I think that's very closely linked to the extent to which national public debate, national media in the countries where those MEPs come from pay attention to this issue and are concerned about what's what's going on. Some are clearly feeling the heat a lot more at home than, than others. And then I think the parliament's also in a way in, in, in two minds, because on the one hand, uh, it's keen to uh, show voters that uh, that it's made progress, that it's learned the lessons of Qatargate, that it's changed, that it's imposing stronger rules on lobbying, that it's being tougher on MEPs when it comes to enforcing the code of conduct and strengthening the code of conduct. But at the same time, uh, these MEPs don't want those rules to be imposed on on them. They they you know they they they're in favour in theory, but when it comes to the details, they uh, they get cold feet. And <clears throat> I think a good example of that is a proposal by the president uh, in December to uh, increase the, the amount of time or to impose a limit on, uh, on MEPs becoming lobbyists straight after leaving the parliament. There was a proposal to impose a restriction that said that MEPs basically couldn't lobby the parliament for between six and 24 months, depending on length of service. Mm. That proposal has now been withdrawn, has been reduced to, to six months. And uh, that may sound like a bureaucratic detail to, to many, but the reality is that in the six months after MEPs leave the European Parliament, nothing really happens from a legislative point of view. There is no activity in Brussels in the first six months of a new parliamentary term. And so imposing a six-month lobbying ban on, for MEPs uh, of six months really doesn't, doesn't make any difference to the problem that's been uh, identified. So uh, the, the parliament is backpedaling on some of the promises it's been making. And what is critical now, we think, is for public opinion to keep up the pressure on MEPs uh, to remind them uh, of the enormity of the scandal that they faced, of the huge challenge that's ahead of them in terms of this, the way the system works and the need to do something about it uh, in time for these elections taking place uh, next year. Wasn't there talk at, at some point quite recently of the creation of a, some kind of independent ethics board or ex ethics uh, supervisory authority uh, independent of the parliament or even of the other institutions? Or I mis misheard something. Yes, that's right. That's been a, that's a proposal that's been on the table uh, okay. now for for um, uh, well almost five years. Uh, in fact, uh, President von der Leyen, European Commission president, made a commitment to set up such a body when she took office in 2019. But there is not yet a proposal from the Commission. We are still waiting for one. Uh, the, the 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 Commission reiterated their commitment to putting forward a plan when Qatargate broke, but it's not it's not there yet. Uh, we understand it's it's work in progress, but there too there are strong opponents of setting up such a body because what this body would do is to set up an independent body of uh, people external to the European institutions who would be giving advice on uh, on, on how to uh, organise the, uh, the Parliament's internal uh, ethics, uh, ethics rules. And introducing such an external element into the ethics and accountability uh, process of the European institutions is anathema to many MEPs, but also to many commissioners, uh, and so has been uh, stuck. Right. But to be fair, to, as I understand it, to the, be fair to the European Commission, uh, your earlier point about MEPs being or not subject to rules uh, and about lobbying once they left uh, the European Parliament as elected parliamentarians, the, the Commission does have rules, right, about uh, ex-commissioners and, and senior officials, director generals, and so on, so on, being able to, to lobby only after a certain period. So in that sense, the European Commission has more of its house in order than the European Parliament? 
I, there's some debate about that, but I think it's fair to say that the Commission is probably further advanced there than than the Parliament is. They certainly have uh, better rules in place when it comes to the issue of revolving doors, and unfortunately, they don't always apply them. Uh, and and there too, there is a problem with enforcement, and and there too, uh, I think there's a problem that uh, that the system is too internal and lacks uh, an, an outside uh, perspective uh, that would help. Uh, make sure that the institutions stick to the rules that they've uh, they've adopted. You know, unfortunately, the problem is that that many of the people involved in these processes internally uh, realize that one day they themselves too will be subject to this uh, to the to the rules. And so, I think there's this kind of esprit de corps that means that people don't get too tough on each other and, and you know make sure that the the rules are applied in the the lightest way uh, possible. Uh, and so that's that's really. An important reason for saying that, uh, you know, it shouldn't be the president of the commission or the president of parliament deciding uh, these things in the, in the final resort. Uh, there should be uh, an external body um, coming forward with the proposals on, on what to do in uh, in these cases. You said earlier, that a lot of this is not particularly new. We're going to argue about the different levels of gravity. But maybe to, to inform our listeners or remind listeners, you've had a very interesting career before your current job, working both as an MEP, working uh, in the council secretariat, working in national politics in the Netherlands. Do you think that at the moment it's a uh, situation, broadly speaking, is, is worse? Or is it simply that we have a better handle, we have more information about uh, all this alleged corruption in a way we didn't have maybe in the past? Well, it's it, that's a very good question, Paul. I mean, I think in some in some respects you could argue that things are worse because the the the, the sheer magnitude of Qatargate uh, is something that we haven't seen uh, that we haven't seen before, and the fact that we've allowed ourselves in Brussels to get to this stage, I think, is 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 a is an indictment. But at the same time, I think it's also important to recognise that European institutions, uh, I think, probably receive greater scrutiny. When it comes to issues of ethics and accountability, than uh, than a national political system, and that's because these institutions are still fighting to uh, to prove their worth, uh, to prove to European citizens that they are necessary, uh, uh, and uh, and and that they have a value in in in, in the way people's daily lives are are organised and. Uh, the legitimacy of national political institutions isn't questioned by voters in the same way. So I think that, yes, uh, scandals at the European level, problems at the European level, they are given greater scrutiny than at the national level. But, you know, that's something that policymakers in Brussels have to work with. I mean, it's not enough to uh, to complain about the fact that there's so much scrutiny. The, the institutions uh, have the tools at their disposal to address the concerns that have been uh, identified. They can strengthen the rules, they can make sure the rules are enforced, uh, and that way make sure that, that these kind of scandals uh, don't happen again, or at least that the climate in which this kind of scandal can take place uh, is, 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 is fundamentally changed. We've talked so far only about um, lack of transparency and the and the correlation between between that and uh, and uh, influence and influence peddling, as we used to call it. Does your organisation also cover instances of alleged corruption when it comes to, for example, disbursement of, of EU funds? The EU budget is, is some, most people would argue, is quite large, and there are lots of new uh, funds out there, especially this new re uh, recovery and resilience facility post-COVID, where huge amounts of money can be dispersed. Does Transparency International also cover? And monitor how funds are dispersed at the national level, or is that too almost too difficult an area to get into because it's so more complex? 
We, we do look at that. It's not something that the Brussels office looks at specifically because we're focused on on uh, on, on policy change. But the uh, our national chapters, so the, the National Offices of Transparency International in the EU member states, which are autonomous organisations, uh, many of them work on, on exactly this kind of issue and uh, and try to identify cases where uh, where fraud has taken place or where irregularities have taken place, or they are told about this by people who are uh, who, who've witnessed this, and then help to guide them towards the correct authorities to uh, to to investigate. Uh, because we're not, uh, you know, we're not a judicial uh, judicial organization, uh, but where we see cases of wrongdoing, uh, we report them to the authorities. And then we try to draw the lessons by making sure that the that the rules are in place to make sure that uh, these things can't happen or can't happen uh, again. And you know, a, a good example actually is is Ukraine, where there's already a process in place now. People are beginning to think about how we make sure that when Ukraine uh, is 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 free again and Western countries uh, start to help pay towards its reconstruction, how we make sure that that money is properly spent. And we are working with our sister organization in Ukraine. And many other civil society organizations to make sure that uh, the right framework is in place to make sure that there's scrutiny, that there's monitoring, that there's civil society involvement, because all these things uh, are ways of making sure that it's very, you know, it's harder to to uh, to misuse funds that are allocated. Okay, a final question, Michael. Uh, you made an important point just now about how uh, these issues may be uh, disproportionately more impactful when it comes to the the EU and the institution because legitimacy of these institutions is more called into question by more people than than national institutions, and we all know that. Are you optimistic? Uh, that it, going forward, that the institutions are, are, are more conscious of us now. I know you hinted at the the kind of reticence, should we call it, reluctance of the parliament to 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 actually you know wake up and smell the coffee. But are you generally more hopeful, optimistic about the future, or do you still think there's more cause for concern that people still inside the inside the building they still don't quite get it? I think there are definitely people who still don't get it, uh, who think this is all, uh, you know, sort of a, an attack on the EU, an attack on the institutions by anti-Europeans, etc., as, as they would describe it. And there are also those, I think, who see the problem but don't take it seriously enough. And I think that the Parliament has a very uh, narrow window, uh, I would say, between now and the summer to make sure that it implements the reforms that it's been promising to to implement uh, that would give it one last parliamentary year before the elections in which to focus on uh, on policy rather than on scandal. Uh, what, what I'm concerned about is that if the parliament doesn't get its act together between now and, and this summer, that we will spend the next 18 months between now and the elections with a drip drip of scandals, with a parliament that's seen to be unwilling to take uh, remedial action. Uh, and then I think the, the institutions, the parliament, but also the commission, uh, we'll have a huge problem when it comes to uh, to the European elections of next year. Okay, well, we have to leave it there. Michel van Hulten, thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Paul.